Hello, I'm Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History. Today is episode five, entitled The 19th Century Feminine Ideal, colon, Constricting Construct. What do I mean by that? Well, what is the 19th century ideal? What, what is that term? Well, it's basically a context and a construct about women and what is acceptable behavior and acceptable appearance. It is a very, very narrow construct. And it will, in many ways, it is the context in which the first movement for women's rights emerged because the context is so constricting in its definition of what is acceptable behavior for a woman and what is an acceptable look and and what it is that you are expected to do. I want to give you a parallel that might make it a little easier to understand. If I say the 1950s and I say, draw me a picture of a woman in the 1950s, so many more people are familiar with that period and also because we have so many retro movements that kind of hark back to it. And in the 1950s, if you think about what are the parameters of a woman's life, what is the construct of woman in the 1950s? Well, whether you see it in a magazine, a cookbook, or on television commercials, it's a housewife. She has kids. She's pretty. She's very well-groomed. Her hair is always done. Her makeup is on. Her nails are done. She has a pretty dress pulled tight at the waist. She's wearing a girdle and a very tight torpedo bra, and she doesn't engage in outside work. She's perfectly happy taking care of her children, her house, and her husband. And one of the symbols of the 1950s that will become a target of the second wave of feminism, because the first wave of feminism comes out of the context of the 19th century ideal, But the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s emerges out of the 50s, which I call the punishment decade. And the article of clothing, you might be surprised, is most associated with this period is the apron. And I say that, too, because aprons have been making such a comeback. Whether I go to Marshalls or Home Goods or uh, any kind of home store or cooking store, there's always all these cute, adorable aprons that are very reminiscent of the ones my mother wore in the 60s and 70s. And aprons are utilitarian, but then there were also those decorative aprons that you only wore when you were hosting a dinner party because they were pretty and they weren't made out of material that you could get full of food. And it will be in the second wave of feminism that feminists are going to burn aprons, forget bras, aprons are the symbol of what ties you to uh, the household. So when you think about that, think, translate how you understand the 1950s and that context for women to the 19th century, because the 19th century is, God, I can't decide which one is more constricting in terms of relegating women to the household and defining them by their biology and that the household and children are the natural extension of their biology and the most appropriate place for them to be. Okay, 
So let's look. What do I mean 19th century ideal? There are other names. It goes by the cult of domesticity. It goes by Victorian womanhood. As I said, it is both a context in which women functioned in which the first wave of feminism emerges, but it is also a construct, meaning that the 19th century society had a very clear construction of what a woman should look like, act like, and care about. In our next episode, uh, we'll be talking about what happens when you don't meet this ideal, uh, and I will be talking about some current events that, that may surprise you. But Let's start with what do I mean by this 19th century ideal? Well, it applies to all women, but middle and upper middle class white women were the definers of that or, or who that cult was targeted at. And it will be, in many respects, these same women who were going to rebel against this context. And we'll talk about how all this applies to African-American women uh, in a later episode. Okay, so what's the first thing that, that defines all women in the 19th century? What is the first and most important thing? That she's married, that she's a wife. If you think about the 19th and 20th century and you think of single women, well, there's not very many of them and the ones there are, are objects of pity. And of course, the famous term spinster. The last thing you wanted to be was a spinster, meaning you were probably over the age of 22 or 23 and you were unmarried and there wasn't a likelihood you would be married because essentially you're thwarting your innate nature because you can't uh, be attached to a man and you can't have children. And I just want you to, again, think about one of our goals here. Think of the relevance of this. Think about women who don't get married now or who choose to remain childless. What does our society say about them? How do we portray them? How do we discuss them? What do we say about them? Well, in a lot of parts of the country and in a lot of cultures, the idea of being unmarried is unthinkable because it is your one goal. And if you think about education in the 19th century and well into the 20th century, whatever education you had was going to be basically focused on what is your role going to be in life. You're going to be a wife and a mother. So other than basic reading and writing, you need to just learn how to run a household and how to cook and order groceries, etc., how to dress, how to create a home that's helpful to your husband. So all women sought to be wives. And again, today, take a moment and think, do I know anybody who's unmarried and who wants to be married or somebody who's unmarried who is choosing that? How do I feel about that? What do I think about that? And, and in doing that, what you'll notice is how insidious uh, systematic sexism is because there's a part of you that's like, wow, what's wrong? She doesn't want kids. Wait a minute, what? You're never going to get married? There's still a reaction like that as though that is in some way a rejection of this most important and essential part of femininity. But by being married... The 19th century put you in a, an extremely well-binded legal status. Um, it's called coveture. What do I mean when I say coveture? Well, it comes from the term femme couvert. And essentially, the law 
is going to describe women not as property per se. Everybody walks around thinking that, oh, women used to be pro the property of their husbands. That's not entirely accurate. In 19th century America, which remember is still in 19th century America, although we are no longer British subjects, our culture is British and British common law was what this country is built upon. So English law very much applied to the Americas. And what do we mean when we say coverture? Well, I'm going to give you a quote by the famous legal commentator, Sir William Blackstone, who wrote, quote, by marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage or at least incorporated and consolidated into that of her husband, under whose wing protection and cover she performs everything. End quote. The popular way they determined uh, to, to describe this is, husband and wife are one person, and that one person is the husband. Legal commentator will say it like this. If you think of a river... And we can think of the Mississippi, or because he was English, he picked the Thames River. All of these little tributaries that have a separate existence from the main river eventually merge with the main river. And when they merge with that big river, they cease to have their own name and identity as some sort of separate waterway. It just becomes part of the Mississippi or part of the Thames. So you're absorbed into the legal status of your husband. Now, in practice, what does that mean? Well, it means this. When you get married, if your mother, say, gives you a piece of family jewelry, if your father bestows a small amount of money on you, whatever you bring into the marriage with you is no longer yours. It belongs to your husband and he can do anything he wants to with it so that you have no recourse if your husband decides to take your funds, your money, whatever is in is technically yours and he can do whatever he wants to with it and you have no legal recourse. If you earn money, say you take in washing to help make ends meet for the household, say you are a writer and maybe even actually got paid to write, nope, anything you earned becomes the property of your husband. A husband can also cut you out of the will. So if he predeceases you, the only thing you're legally entitled to was what was called the widow's third. So he couldn't completely leave you destitute, but he could say, I want all of this other property to go to someone else. And many people uh, like to point out that married women were also subject to the rule of thumb. And what does that mean? Well, legally, and the term the legal theorists use was, quote, moderate correction. A husband could engage in moderate correction of his wife, and there is a lot of uh, controversy over whether this is where the rule of thumb comes from, meaning that he could correct you with an implement that was no thicker than your thumb. 
what it amounts to in practice is that even if you're being physically abused by your husband, you probably have no legal recourse. It has to be abuse of such extreme that other men who normally would be understanding the husband's point of view would recognize it as such. And that, that happened very, very rarely. A wife cannot live separately. If she decides, oh, okay, I want to run away from this abusive husband. I want to take my kids with me. Well, you can't do that because if he finds you, he can take you back. And there was a famous English case in the middle of the 19th century of a woman who ran away from her husband and for four years lived with her mother in Paris. Uh, the husband figured out where she was, came and got her, and literally locked her up, which we, he, he's legally entitled to do. And she sued for a writ of habeas corpus, uh, meaning that she wanted to bring suit against him. But the judge said, in accordance with the general dominion, which the law attributes to the husband over the wife, the husband is entitled to prevent his wife from, quote, the danger of unrestrained intercourse with the world. And the way he keeps her from cohabitating or engaging in unrestrained intercourse with the world is by enforcing cohabitation in a common residence. So the woman in this particular case ultimately lived a life of perpetual imprisonment. Because uh, again, he has that right by law. And by law, there's very little you can do about it. Another woman who, in the middle of the 19th century, was trying to get out of a terrible marriage and also was participating in some reform movements to reform uh, the Marriage and Divorce Act, basically wrote uh, a small pamphlet that she sent to lawmakers in which she very succinctly and clearly laid out what the status of a wife is. And here it is. An English wife may not leave her husband's house. Not only can he sue her for restitution of conjugal rights, but he has a right to enter the house of any friend or relation with whom she might take refuge and carry her away by force. If the wife sue for separation for cruelty, it must be cruelty that endangers life or limb. If her husband take proceedings for a divorce, she is not in the first instance allowed to defend herself. She's not represented by an attorney nor permitted to be considered a party to the suit between him and her supposed lover for damages. If an English wife is guilty of infidelity, her husband can divorce her so as to marry again but she cannot divorce her husband, however profligate he may be. No law court can divorce in England. A special act of parliament annulling the marriage had to be passed. And it took until the latter part of the 19th century for that to change. Now, in the United States in the 19th century, some states did begin moving away from coverture laws. And uh, coverture laws are, again, these laws that were in place that created a situation in which not only you don't you have a legal existence, but you don't have certain rights. And coverture ideas lasted well into the 20th century. Let me give you an example. The right for a woman to sit on a jury. 
I'm going to be talking about that later on when we do some Supreme Court cases. But the idea that a woman has a right to that kind of public participation, the idea that a woman who is a defendant would want a jury of her peers, which would include women, nope. She, that doesn't exist. Uh, the idea that a woman needed her own credit card. Believe it or not, people, that did not happen until the 1970s. You needed to have a co-signer to a credit card, a loan, whatever it is. You were still bound within these very strict confines of marriage. Now, that legal status of women in the 19th century is going to be a huge target of the first movement for women's rights. Uh, that movement will formally begin in 1848 in a little town called Seneca Falls, New York. But prior to that, there are writings and activity activities by some women that specifically address this issue of a woman's legal status and the way in which it confines her to a life that is so narrow, your existence is so confined, your ability to express yourself is only allowed within this very, very tightly detailed and tightly woven idea of what a woman is. So let's talk about what that is in terms of everyday life and expectations. Well, first and foremost, the idea of proper, a proper 19th century woman and the ideal, one of the first and most important virtues is submissiveness. That's perhaps the most famous virtue. And in the 19th century, throughout the 19th century, but especially the latter half, you start to get all sorts of ladies books, you get ladies magazines, you get handbooks for the household, and all of them are not just focused on one particular issue. They all incorporate behavior and what you're supposed to do. So for example, uh, in one young lady's book, um, they explained, it is certain that in whatever situation of life a woman is placed from her cradle to her grave, a spirit of obedience and submission, pliability of temper and humility of mind are required of her. Okay, so who are you supposed to obey and submit to? First your father, and then your husband. Let me give you a mental image. In a wedding, typically the father walks the bride down the aisle, and then he takes her hand and puts it in the hand of her husband. Right there, you have a very clear representation of the fact that this woman does not exist legally on her own and she owes deference to a male figure, father or husband. And if for some reason both of them predecease her, she will then have to have deference to probably her brother. So submissiveness is very, very important. And part of it is that a woman knows that she's weak and timid and she needs a protector. She asks her husband for all of the guidance that she needs because she can't figure out things for herself. And certainly she's physically weaker, so she relies on a man for protection. And 
This quote from a pop, another one of these popular handbooks, uh, reminds me very much of some of the popular how-to books of the middle of the 20th century, the 70s and the 80s. A really sensible woman feels her dependence. She does what she can, but she is conscious of her inferiority and therefore grateful for support. So true femininity is constructed in a way in which not only do you not have a legal existence, but you must constantly and forever defer to a male figure because of your inherent weaknesses of mind and body. And you're supposed to like it. You're supposed to uh, surrender to this because it makes you feel good as a woman. When we do the World War II uh, episode, I will read from a book about sexuality that comes out right after the war in which much of this is reiterated, that women don't feel truly fulfilled unless they let themselves feel their dependence on their husbands and surrender to that, that once you do that, you then become more powerful. I swear this isn't a lot of how-to books. You can look up any of them. Okay, submissiveness, obedience, and her life is focused on the domestic sphere, or what we call the private sphere. In the 19th century, as industrialization spreads, we start to see a move away from families living in a rural environment in which everyone in the household contributed to the farming and the chores around the, the farm and the household. Well, it starts to change dramatically as people move into urban areas and we begin to see men going out to work, factory, office, and women staying at home. And it is this cult of domesticity, this separate sphere that women exist in. And it's her job. This is part of what your job is. The husband has to go out into the aggressive, violent, public world of politics and business. But women, of course, are physically and emotionally, mentally and legally incapable of doing that. So what is her job? Her job is to create a home so that when her husband comes home from this terrible, violent, aggressive world of men, he has peace and quiet and stability and a loving wife. She has food ready for him. She has the children cleaned and ready. She has whatever it is that she is required to do within this household. And it is for the purpose of creating a private sanctuary for her husband. Now, think now. Well, wow, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Are you sure? Think about domesticity. We're going to get into a little game of how this all applies now in one second. Separate spheres. Separate spheres not only uh, emerge out of, you know, this idea of women incapable of functioning in the public sphere. It's the idea that science informs this cultural belief that women only exist in the private sphere because of their biology. Why? Because women are naturally more nurturing. They are more passive. They're more delicate. 
They're not rational. They can't function in a world where they're required to be aggressive and independent and tough. Those are not characteristics for a woman. And so science is going to explain why that is so. And throughout the 19th century, these scientific explanations about women's biology and physiology will be used to justify why women are relegated to the private sphere, but also why they can't go to college, why they can't vote, why they can't be lawyers or doctors or engage in any kind of public activity. Well, what is their science based on? Well, women are physically smaller than men. Women have less physical stamina than men because they seem to faint quite a bit more. Now, that may have something to do with the tight corsets, but that isn't how 19th century science uh, determined it. And the last scientific observation goes right back to Aristotle. Remember, I told you in those episodes about the Greeks and then the one about the Christians, those are the foundations upon which Western culture built the idea of what is a woman and what is her role in society. And in the 19th century, they go right back to the Greeks and the Christians and they focus on the uterus. As one physician in the 19th century said, the female uterus is essentially her, her basis for her social role. He argued, quote, it was as if the Almighty in creating the female sex had taken the uterus and built up a woman around it. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that your reproductive system is the basis upon which all of your health uh, it stems from, whether it's your physical health or your emotional and mental health. And the idea is uh, that somehow if you were mad or irritable or cranky or you had a headache, clearly that must be because of your reproductive organs. And that doesn't exist in men. They don't have to deal with that. Anytime a woman is seen as, oh, a little nervous, a little excitable, unpredictable, it all goes back to her uterus. Hence, once again, why I titled this podcast, You Are Your Uterus. Okay, now, science also was used to explain why women uh, were not interested in sex and sexuality. And essentially what they're going to argue here is that sex is seen as something that good women don't want to engage in, but you only do because you are required to, to have children. And men are the ones who have the stronger sexual feelings, and it's up to the woman to put the brakes on. Now, this is really in um, contrast a lot with earlier historical periods where women were always seen as the more sexual. But the idea is, is that from the time of puberty, when women begin menstru menstruating, there has to be a specific focus on their reproductive systems and making sure that she doesn't do anything to thwart the natural process of the reproductive function. So, you know, this, uh, this idea is, is that your reproductive function really 
takes up a lot of your energy. And at the time, 19th century physicians believed that there was a certain amount of innate energy in each person. And once it was used up, you don't have any more energy. Well, they applied this to women by saying, okay, well, menstruation, hello, that takes up a lot of energy. Lactation and pregnancy, wow, those really take up a lot of energy for the body and menopause. Now, because all of these systems are inextricably linked to every facet of a woman's behavior and health, the idea was we don't want to do anything that's going to impede that reproductive process. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we can't strain our reproductive process by things like school or education or any kind of activity that would create an imbalance in our reproductive system. So clearly, because our reproductive system, which of course is centered on the uterus, is the be-all and end-all of a woman's existence, her normal and natural inclination should be to be a wife and mother. Okay, that is how uh, a woman lives in the world. So those are some of the most important aspects of the uh, feminine ideal. And I want you to think, if you can, of an image of a 19th century woman and the kind of clothes she wore. Because a, a woman had a very, very specific set of rules about her appearance. Clearly, it isn't until well into the 20th century that women are able to have dresses that are above the ankle and then above the knee. That takes a long time. Moreover, uh, the idea of undergarments, of having this corseted figure is essential. And they start putting little girls in corsets at puberty and the impediment to physical activity that is represented by a corset, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the famous feminist of the 19th century, will write about it. She'll talk about how awful it is for little girls who run around and play with their brothers and are free, but then they hit, what, 11, 12 years old? Boom, all that's over. Here's your first corset, honey. Not the same as a first training bra. Remember, they used to call them training bras. Um, but it's the idea that you needed to be constricted. And the clothing of the 19th century is an obvious metaphor for how a male society understood the role and status of women. She has to be completely covered with a dress, pants not allowed. And in fact, many places had laws that uh, would not allow you to wear pants. Uh, moreover, you had to have yourself covered with this corset and the corset makes it very, very hard to breathe and move around. You, you sure can't run away from anyone wearing that. And people have, other historians have done studies about what a corset does to your body. Way back in 2012, there was an article in the New York Times paper where they had some illustrations and you can look these up on, on Google of what happens to a woman's body, how it gets distorted after corset wearing for decades every day of her life. Every single day for the whole day, you are in that corset and you wear it every day except when you're sleeping and 
you wear it for decades in your life. And there have been uh, studies that show it squishes some of your vital organs. It, it, if it's made of whalebone, there are cases of the bones piercing the lungs of some women. Of certainly cracked and bruised ribs were a very common phenomena. And I can tell you as someone who's had cracked and broken ribs, it hurts. But it's the idea that the clothes represent your, your closed environment, if you will. And the idea that somehow any desire to change women's clothing is an affront to the whole idea of womanhood. I used to bring a corset with me when I taught in college and I would have people try it on. And it was really funny because when you tie those things tight, they're painful. And then I brought in a modern equivalent. Oh, you know, those things called Spanx. And I remember one young guy, a football player, pulling the Spanx out of the package and looking at it and remarking that it looked like it would fit his four-year-old niece, that he couldn't understand how you wear this. Corsets have also become very popular again, thanks to, I don't know, some internet people, Kardashian or somebody, other people like that, who walk around and show what a great figure it gives you. Yeah, well, it hurts and it gives you a figure that is a figure that has been defined by men as the proper figure for a woman's body. So, um, again, those are all things that have been defined by men. Now, I want you to think for a minute about all these different traits, because you might be saying to yourself, oh, well, that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, maybe it existed in the 50s too, but that doesn't exist anymore. Women aren't supposed to be domestic and submissive and wear certain kinds of clothing and have a certain attitude towards sexuality. Oh, really? Hmm. I can think of a whole lot of things. Let's just talk with domesticity. Now, there's no question that women are in the workplace and women joined the workplace first in the 40s and then later in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There was a huge influx of women in the workplace. But who was supposed to still take care of the house? I mean, aside from the women who could afford all sorts of domestic help, who were advertisements about cleaning products aimed at? Who were advertisements about childcare aimed at? Who were advertisements about undergarments aimed at? All women. So the idea that domesticity as a part of a woman's construct doesn't exist is inaccurate. The clothes are different. The uh, fact that women are in the workplace is vastly different because women now have to do both things. But the idea that domesticity and the household are not central to the idea of what makes you a woman and a woman's context is still with us. There are plenty of surveys and and polls that show that it's only changed very, very recently where men are understanding that, yeah, okay, 
is it my job to do the laundry or yours? And I've actually started to see, and, and this brings me great joy, commercials where the guy is doing the laundry. I love the one where the guy has his little girl, he's at home, she, she doesn't want to take out her little favorite, whether it's a pirate outfit or superhero outfit, but he has to wash it, and so it's a commercial for whatever detergent. Uh, similarly, there are commercials with men um, about cleaning products. But by and large, the household is still seen as the domain of women. And oftentimes I ask my students, well, if you were going to get married, have you guys already figured out who's going to be in charge of what? How many young people walk into a relationship of cohabitation, whether it includes marriage or not, without any sense of who's doing the laundry, who's doing the grocery shopping, who's cooking, who's emptying the garbage, who's taking the kids to soccer practice, who's making the doctor appointments for the kids. You know, there's not, we still are not in a place where there's an assumption that that's going to be equally shared and that men are willing to step up and do that. It's only now beginning to really change and, and it's so slow. When you think about this, the, the pace of changes for women is excruciatingly slow. So don't think when I'm talking about the 19th century or the 1950s that that is some way, some long ago time. In a lot of ways, the only thing that's changed are the clothes. You may be able to wear sweatpants and a sweatshirt to do chores, and you don't have to wear a bra or a corset or any of that stuff. But when it comes to domesticity, is there an understanding of equality between men and women? I don't mean sameness. No one's saying men and women are the same, but I mean equality. In other words, oh, I like to cook. I'll do the cooking. Great. I hate to do laundry. You do the laundry. There are still a lot of built-in assumptions about why women are still saddled with the idea that it's all their responsibility. I want to bring up one other point about women and domesticity and the separate spheres. And that is a little exercise I used to do myself, and I would tell my class to do this. In the college I taught at, there was a Toys R Us very, very close by. And I would say to the kids, why don't you take a stroll through Toys R Us? Because I had little kids at the time. I loved going to Toys R Us. I mean, the toys are just so great, but they're also so horrible. Because when you did walk into a Toys R Us, uh, what do you see? There's this whole pink section and then there's the Hot Wheels and G.I. Joes and, and superheroes. It's getting a little better, but by and large, the toys that we give girls are toys that are focused on dom domesticity. There are toy washer and dryers. There are toy vacuum cleaners. There are toy brooms and mops. There are toy microwaves. There are toys for every kind of appliance a woman is going to use in the household. And then, of course, there are tons of dolls. Dolls that pee, doll, dolls that cry. Uh, for a while, there was this fascinating European doll that actually nursed. Uh, and it was a European doll that, that was sold very briefly here, but too many parents complained because that's too sexual. So this ad of a little girl holding this doll that, you know, had moving plastic lips just freaked everybody out here. So I don't know what happened to that doll. But the idea is, what are the toys we give boys and girls? 
they reinforce the idea of the sphere that you belong to and the sphere that you're mostly going to be operating on. So let's talk about uh, the separate spheres and clothing and submissiveness. Well, we just talked about the household, but think about the separate spheres this way. There's a public and a private sphere. And you can argue, okay, women don't have to be like locked in the house anymore, but you know, I just made a long list of, of the nuance of it, that it's not as simple as that, oh, well, I have a job, so therefore the cult of domesticity and the idea of women tethered to the household doesn't apply to me. Of course it does. But in the public world, think about how much the construct of woman influences how women act in public and how they perform their public function, whether that's lawyer, doctor, uh, wait staff, politician, teacher, college professor, any anything that's not in the household, what is expected of how you're going to act? Well, can you be aggressive? Not really. If you go into a business meeting and you're all aggressive, what do they say about her? Oh, she's so aggressive. What a bitch. No, for it's the old thing. It's assertive for a man, but aggressive for a woman. A man shows leadership skills. A, a girl is bossy. A man lays down the rules and insists on everyone following his lead. A woman who does that you know, is stepping out of her place. So women in the public sphere today have such an, an eggshell navigation that we have to go through. And it all depends on what that place in the public is, what your place of work is, or when you are out in public. And by that, again, I mean whether you're a face of a company or part of a team of salespeople in a corporate environment. It doesn't matter where that public spaces. Think of public as anything that's not the household. Think about in your own life how it is you've been expected to act and how you tailor your behavior so your certain things aren't assumed. And this goes back to this issue that they talk about a lot now, which is that women try to be liked. Well, you know, if you're going to try to make everybody like you, you're not going to be as effective as someone who understands what their job is. If you're in a position of authority, you have to exert that authority. But how you exert it is a big issue. How do you act presidential? How do you act like the boss without the men in, in your immediate vicinity reacting badly? The internet has blown all of this up in the sense that you can go on any app or, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Reddit, I don't know, all of those ones that are out there. And you can ask yourself how many of these women are riding in with issues that I would say go back to the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian foundations, but are really a direct result of the of the 19th century feminine ideal and its resurgence in the 1950s. There are ways that you cannot act because if you do, you are not going to succeed. And I will talk about uh, this more.
in the next episode, but I will just bring up that Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing a few years ago. The woman who made it clear that she was 100% certain that Kavanaugh attempted to rape her at a high school party, 100% certain was quiet and soft-spoken and apologetic. And she had to, because if she had been hysterical, everybody would have, oh my God. But imagine if she had acted like Brett Kavanaugh did when it was her, his time to go in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He banged his fists. He hollered and, and yelled and he was the victim and, and he just loves beer. Well, no woman could act like that. Can you imagine a, a Supreme Court justice nominee acting like that in front of a Judiciary Committee? It's, go back to the 90s to Anita Hill. Look at five minutes of a clip. She was soft-spoken. She was very clear and emphatic, but she wasn't aggressive. She wasn't preachy. She wasn't insistent. And yet when it was Clarence Thomas's turn, he made it all about race, that somehow this had to do with white and black and putting down a black man when... To me, it was about sexual harassment and what Anita Hill said happened and how that should disqualify this individual from sitting on the court. Likewise with Kavanaugh. After his disastrous uh, explosion on TV, we had the great entertainment of Saturday Night Live and Matt Damon, but what we did have seriously were thousands of lawyers and prosecutors and judges writing to the Judiciary Committee and, and to any newspaper that would publish it. This man does not have the temperament to be on the Supreme Court. Look at how he acted. Well, no, no problem for a man. He was completely justified because he was being railroaded and this terrible accusation from decades ago was leveled at him. Again, Imagine a woman acting like that, like either one of those men. Imagine it. Imagine a woman acting like any of the men whose behavior is very public. And you, you can't because women aren't allowed to exist in those parameters. Okay, the last uh, bit of the 19th century ideal I want to talk about has to do with clothes and sexuality. I mentioned that clothes in the 19th century and in the 1950s made it clear that a certain shape of woman was expected. The 19th century expected you to be covered up. By the 50s and 60s, you certainly were allowed to show so uh, much more skin. You could show your legs, you could show your arms, you could show your chest, you could show part of your bosom, but by and large, Everybody understood what, oh, she was dressed like fill in the blank. In other words, there's a certain type of appropriate dress for women. And if you didn't dress that way, and if you don't dress that way, assumptions are made about you. So uh, it's up to women to dress in a way, according to uh, the construct of femininity, in order not to create enticement in men. In other words, if you're wearing a certain kind of clothing and you become a victim of some sort of 
sexual assault, attempted sexual assault, catcalling, somebody grabbing you in an inappropriate place. Well, clearly, if you weren't dressed like that, that wouldn't happen. That's the feeling. I mean, a couple of years ago when the Harvey Weinstein Me Too movement was exploding, the current uh, host of Jeopardy, Maya Bialik, where wrote a New York Times editorial in which she talked about how she makes sure to dress modestly because that doesn't give anybody any ideas. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, what? even if you're dressed in a nun's habit or completely covered head to toe, has nothing to do with how you are going to be perceived. Because plenty of women who are, as we call, the perfect victim, in other words, they're virginal, they're dressed right, they don't mess around with boys. Even when something happens to that perfect kind of girl, you know it's always going to get turned around on her. And that's a very, very small percentage of girls. Whether you're talking about, um, again, a cat call, an inappropriate touching, or all the way out to an, a sexual assault, our society still turns it around on the woman and says, well, what were you wearing? How were you acting? Oh, well, you were at the bar. You were showing your boobs. You were, you were wearing a short skirt. Well, you were asking for it. It's never society's, and by that I mean patriarchal society's job to accept women for who they are. It's always our job to keep them from interpreting our dress and behavior in the wrong way. So again, we're confined. We're perpetually confined to what a patriarchal society says is acceptable dress and behavior as long as everyone will always turn it around and say it's her fault. And it, it, of course men are going to react that way. No, if, if men are raised in a different way, if we understand women as human beings, if we start to outgrow some of these cultural stereotypes that are, in my view, ancient, um, things can change. It's like the t-shirt says, um, men should be taught not to rape. Why is it the duty of women to thwart rapists with modest dress, a knife, a gun, or pepper spray? But it is. And that is the part that, again, goes back to this 19th century ideal, that there's a way to, for women to look and act. And if you don't look and act like that, then the consequences that flow are your responsibility. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.